open with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, going to be in verses 1 through 11. I, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving feasting together as a family. I hope you're coming with expectation to feast on God's word this morning. Philippians 2, we're going to start in verse 1 and go all the way to verse 11. Here then is God's word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God is highly exalted in him and it bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you join me as we pray? Ask the Lord's blessing. Father, as we come to your word now, would you help us to believe that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Would you sustain us even now in our hearts and in our souls? Help us hear your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The most difficult thing for a player to do when they become part of a team is to sacrifice. It's much easier and much more natural to be selfish. Those are the words of Hall of Fame coach Pat Riley in a book called The Disease of Me. Now, if you don't know Pat Riley, he has been at the top of the NBA for many decades now. Back in the 80s, he was part of something called the Showtime Lakers. They were a modern dynasty that won championships year after year, it seemed like. And it seemed as if nothing could stop them until some fissures started showing up in the team. The coach and the players started bickering. It spilled out into the media. And before you knew it, the whole thing went up in smoke. Riley was distraught over watching this team that he had built just fall to pieces. And so he he did a little soul searching. And the fruit of that soul searching was this book called The Disease of Me. In it, he identified six attributes Six things that he says are markers of the disease of me taking over a team. Here they are. 
The first is feeling of underappreciation. He describes it as a woe is me attitude. The second is focusing on personal interests, like playing time, statistics, things like that. The third are little factions, little cliques breaking out in the team. The fourth is when a player starts to have too much joy, excessive joy at personal accomplishments, even when the team's losing. The fifth is when a player starts to be frustrated by his own struggle, even when the team is winning. And then finally, six, it's the desire for the spotlight, the desire for personal recognition. Now, as far as I can tell, Pat Riley is not a Christian man. But I think he's on to something with the disease of me. Within each one of us is an incredible capacity to be selfish. You've seen it at work in your own family. Maybe you even saw the disease of me popping up around the Thanksgiving table. You've seen it at work at your job, at work. Maybe making your office into somewhere that's less than comfortable to be. And if we're honest, churches almost have made a cottage industry of being infected with the disease of me. Uh, I heard of one church where the student ministry and the children's ministry got into a little turf war. They were using a shared space, and week after week, they would argue about who would set up chairs and where music equipment would go. And one week, it boiled over to the point where the children's ministry found a drum set in a place they didn't like it, so they picked it up and threw it in the dumpster. Needless to say, there was quite the racket the next day when the student ministry showed up. Churches and believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be people that are the most selfless of all. And yet so often, churches are the places where the disease of me has set in the deepest. How do you fight off selfishness in your own heart? How do we as a church keep it at bay? So the gospel of Jesus is visible even to a watching world. Well, Philippians 2, 1 through 11 shows us. It shows us that God's people, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they are called to a humble unity. Fight off the disease of me. But that humble unity is only possible through the grace of Jesus. We're going to see that as we move through the text in two sections. First, we're going to look at one through four. We're going to see this call for God's people to a humble unity among us. And then in five through 11, we're going to see the motivation toward that humble unity, the grace of Jesus itself. Let's start off by looking in verses one through four. Now, to, you have to understand the context of the book of Philippians for this passage to make sense. Uh, this book or letter is really like a missionary support update letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul who's gone around Europe and modern day Asia planting churches and uh, he has a supporting church in Philippi, modern day Greece. Uh, you can tell that it's a church that Paul loves deeply. It's a sweet letter. It's overflowing with joy and gratitude and Paul wrote it to encourage this, this faithful church that has been supporting him financially. Now, the reasons why Paul wrote to them are probably because he was worried that they might be discouraged about his current state of affairs. This is what we would call one of the uh, prison epistles. Uh, they're letters from jail that Paul wrote. 
Uh, you get hints from this letter that Paul thought that his life might be coming to an end pretty soon. And he, out of concern for these churches that he's planted and that have branched out from the churches that he's planted, he writes to them to encourage them for at least two, two areas. Uh, the first is that they would not be overly discouraged by the fact that he's in jail. If you see your spiritual hero get locked behind bars, you might be tempted to think, well, this gospel thing doesn't have as much power as I thought. Paul writes to them to encourage them that actually him being in jail is pushing the gospel forward. It's actually part of God's plan to glorify himself. But secondly, he writes because he knows this church is under pressure. And that pressure is revealing fractures within it. He, he writes and reminds them that they are citizens of heaven that should expect opposition. If you just look back with me, back in verse 27 of chapter 1, he tells them, let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then a little further down in 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. There are, there's some pressure coming from the outside of the church, whether that was false teachers or a secular government that was starting to give this church a whiff of persecution. And Paul knows that can be a discouraging thing. And he also knows that that outside pressure leads to internal friction. There's one point in the letter where he actually calls out two women. He actually tells them to stop arguing and to agree with one another. How would you like that if our church squabbles ended up immortalized in Holy Scripture for uh, thousands of years to be used by God's people. Well, out of his concern, he writes this letter. And like a skilled physician who knows the best way to fight an infection is to get ahead of it, he gives this church what it needs to fight off the disease in me. Starts off by reminding them who they are. That's what you get there in verse 1. So it says, so if there's a, a series of four rhetorical questions he gives there. Any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation spirit, any uh, affection and sympathy. Now, the way those are all written, it's obvious that he intends for the uh, believers hearing this to respond with a yes. They are rhetorical questions with a yes expected. And they're connected to that verse 27 where he called them to live a life worthy of the gospel. Uh, if your Bible has footnotes, you probably have a footnote right there. It tells you it could also be translated as worthy of citizens of heaven or as citi worthy citizens of heaven. The idea is that believers don't just belong to the community they're in. We actually belong to God's kingdom. We are citizens of another place. And that citizenship brings with it certain experiences and benefits that if you're a believer, you have experienced even uh, in your lifetime. So that's what that four, list of four rhetorical questions is designed to tease out. Let's go through them briefly together. The first is he says, have you had any encouragement? Any encouragement in Christ? Has anyone come up alongside you, put their arm around you and said, I am so glad you're here. You know, I, I actually thought about you this week, and I prayed for you. And in your soul, that just did something for you that you didn't even know you needed. Friends, Paul says that is something that the God of the universe does through his people. It's actually Christ encouraging you 
through another person. Oh, how about love? It says, is there any love that you've been experiencing in the body of Christ? Do you have any brothers or sisters that have just showed you love through the way they've served you or the way they've tirelessly listened to you and helped you through a difficult time? Friends, that's actually the Father's love being mediated to us through each other. Or what about the Spirit? Is there any participation in the Holy Spirit? You, you know, I, I hope you don't think you have a corner on the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's something that all believers have dwelling within us. He is uh, our comforter, our helper. If you've ever been convicted by something you've done and known it was a sin, if you've ever had uh, a, a gift that's manifested that the, you know the Lord intends for you to use in serving other people, or if you've ever found just an insight in a conversation that you knew wasn't your own, that's a sign that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The last set of phrases he uses, is there any sympathy or encouragement? That, that's really, a, in Greek, a, a way of talking about like your guts, like the, the deepest desires and emotions that you have. Do you ever find yourself wanting and desiring things that you never would have if you weren't bought and paid for by Jesus? Friends, these four descriptions are basic of what it means to be a Christian. It's an appeal to experience. And if you've been a Christian, though you may not uniformly feel all these things all the time, I'm positive, if you look back, these things are at work within you. Paul starts off there reminding them who they are because he's about to make a pretty big ask. And here's what that ask is in verse 2. It's a reminder of what they're called to, to unity. He tells them, complete my joy. In other words, do this thing that will make my heart sing, even in this dank Roman prison. What is this thing? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, having the same mind. It, th he uses these overlapping phrases that all mean the same basic idea. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are supposed to be united. Now, if you look around the room, we are not all the same. We come from different families, different parts of the country, maybe even different parts of the world. We're different ages. We have different likes. We have different preferences. And yet, as citizens of heaven, we are supposed to be one. Didn't the Lord Jesus Christ pray that before he went to the cross? Pray, Father, that they would be one even as we are one. That's a pretty tough thing to do. I, I don't know about you. I don't find it easy to be united with people that are different from me. How could he even do that? Well, that's what Paul gives us in verses 3 and 4. This is what it's going to take to achieve that unity. And that is humility. He does it both positively and negatively. He's, he tells you what not to do and what to do. And the answer in both is you're supposed to be humble. So avoid selfish ambition. Avoid conceit. Don't just look out for your own interests. Instead, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. If we're honest, we know that we're supposed to do this, that we're supposed to not look inwardly towards our own desires so much as we are to bless others by allowing them to flourish. And yet so often we fail at it, don't we? I heard about one, uh, actually saw uh, one example uh, 
this is one of those videos that will live in YouTube infamy forever. <laughs> um, a pastor and his board of directors got into a little bit of a, a, of a fight, and uh, it ended up that the board of directors voted this pastor out. So this godly, humble shepherd did what any uh, pastor should do in that situation. Uh, he kept the keys so no one else could get in the building. <laughs> so the board of directors decided, all right, we can play this game. They called the local news station, and they waited for him to come out of the church, and they confronted him with the cameras rolling. And uh, this was just one of those moments where the grace of Jesus was so obvious because their uh, disagreement escalated to shouting, and their shouting ended with the pastor literally punching one of the other uh, board of directors in the face on local TV. Um, obviously not what Paul was going for. <laughs> and yet when it is done well, when you do see this sort of humble unity, it's a beautiful thing to behold. Uh, I remember uh, a one particular student that just blew me away with this. He heard about another student that came from a disadvantaged family, just didn't have an opportunity to go to a particular camp. And he knew that if this student went to this camp, he would be spiritually helped by it. The, the money just wasn't available. The church was out of scholarships. So he took his most beloved possession. He had just saved up enough money to buy an Xbox. And he took the Xbox back to the store, and he took the money, and he gave it as an anonymous donation. There's a beauty to that, isn't there? There is a, a glory to the grace of Christ at work in the body of Christ. When we humbly serve each other, when we don't look out for our own interests, but the interests of others. It's the medicine we need to be called to this sort of humble unity. And yet it's difficult medicine to take, isn't it? I hope you hear the beauty in that, but I hope you also feel the weight of it. How can you, in your own heart, drum up that sort of selfless giving away of yourself again and again and again, not just a one-time thing? Well, that's where Paul turns to in the next section in verses 5 through 11. Here we see the thing that will get you there, the motivating grace that brings this humbled unity into the church. We'll see this in two, two sections, in a power and a pattern. First, he starts off with the pattern. He reminds them of something they have that makes this all possible, right there in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves. Right now, that sounds like another command, but here's the good news, second part. Which is yours in Christ Jesus? Now, there's a lot of parts of Scripture that talk about the need for us to discipline our minds. Uh, think of Romans 12, to renew our minds, to transform the way we think. But this section, while well, well, it's important for us to do, this section is not talking about that. This is talking about, this is actually a declaration of something that is already at work inside of you if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. As surely as your sins are forgiven, as surely as his spirit is dwelling inside of you, you have, the, as a possession, the mind of Jesus Christ. Now, there are plenty of times where you will not be operating from that mind. When the disease of me pops up, even among real Christians, 
That is not Jesus' thoughts coming out in our, uh, at work among us. And yet, it is true that this power is there within you. It's a bit like if you were driving around town in a new sports car with over 200 horsepower, but you're stuck going around in school zones at 25 miles an hour. Now, it may not look like you've got all that much power at that moment, but if you get on the highway, boy, watch that car fly. There is something amazing that happens when believers sacrificially get down on their knees to serve each other. You find you've got a strength, you've got a way of thinking, you've got a fortitude that doesn't come from yourself, it comes from Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that should allow us to not be afraid of celebrating when we see that sort of humble attitude towards each other at work. You don't get credit for it anyway. You're just thinking Jesus' thoughts at that moment. He should be the one that gets all the glory. We have a power, but we also have a pattern. That's where 6 through the remainder of the passage, 6 through 11, brings us. Now, this section of scripture is one of those mountaintop parts of the Bible. Believers have loved it back through generations for a very, very good reason. It's beautiful. It's poetic. Uh, it's often called the Carmen Christi because some people think it is one of the earliest hymns that the early church wrote. And it's also one of those moments where you, like Dorothy, get to see behind the curtain and see what the wizard is really like. It brings us back into the very throne room of God in eternity past as the Father and the Son and the Spirit took action to save sinners like us. Within it, there's really two movements. There's a journey down and then a journey back up. You could call it Christ's humiliation and his vindication. I think it's easier to think it's a drop and then it's a being raised back up. The, uh, being the, the drop comes because of where Jesus started. Something can't drop unless it has some altitude, right? <laughs> and Jesus dropped a long way because of where he started. It says there in verse 6 that though he was in the form of God, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, you do need to know that this particular phrase has had much ink spilled over what exactly it means. If you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon come to your door, uh, they will try and smuggle in all sorts of meanings into the Greek language as to explain away what's happening here. But if you would like to like proof that this is actually talking about Jesus as God in heaven prior to his incarnation, the pre-incarnate Christ, all you have to do is see how it fits in with the rest of the passage. This whole passage is a call for believers to be united in humility. Paul is using Jesus as our pattern and example of how to be humble. And it's only humility if you give up something that you have a right to. If I walked into the local Chase Bank and decided, you know, I'm just not going to break in and steal all the money in the vaults. I don't think too many of you would call that humility. 
I don't have the right to all that money. And so it's not any virtue of mine. It's just me not being a criminal. For Jesus to himself say that the benefits and beauties and glories of heaven are not something to take advantage of, it implies that he has the right to those things. This is one of those scriptures that very clearly teaches what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. That God has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. That they are co-equal, co-eternal, that they are fully satisfied in themselves, and yet that each of them have distinct roles that they play in salvation. Here you see the humility of the Son, who got up off of his throne in heaven to do something. What is that something? Well, it says he emptied himself. Once again, we've got a theological landmine here. That phrase, emptied himself, some would tell you, has something along the lines of he pushed off his God's attributes. Uh, he, he ceased to be God during his foray into, uh, into earth. Now, let me just say that if someone does not have the attributes of God, they are not God. Theologically, that just doesn't work. Um, more simply, though, it's just not necessary from the text to go there. The very next phrase shows us how we are supposed to interpret this. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. This is talking about how the great king of, the, of heaven stooped down so low that he could take on human flesh and look us in the eye with eyes of his own. This says nothing about him ceasing to be God. All it affirms is his great humility in entering this broken world. Think about it for a second, what this means. You know, one of the hardest things about getting older that I've seen as a pastor is losing the freedoms you've grown used to. Many of you have aging parents that you are having to have very difficult conversations with about no longer driving, no longer living on their own, no longer being able to do the things that they once were able to do. Why is that so hard? Because when you give up something, you feel the loss. Think for a moment about the drop that Jesus felt. The very face of his father and all the angels in heaven. The very freedom of creating life itself by his word. And yet he would allow himself to be swaddled and have his bottom wiped. For a decade and a half, he would have some backwoods Galileans tell him what to do. Friends, this is the definition of humility. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite, his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. This humility didn't stop with him taking on human flesh. It continued as he was faithful as a man walking around 2,000 years ago in Palestine. And that faithfulness led him all the way to a criminal cross. He allowed himself to be punished 
so that rebel, rebellious, selfish sinners like you and I would not bear the wrath of God. He allowed his blood drops to fall so that God's mercy and grace might fall on us. He did all this not because any of us deserve it. He did it because he's just that sort of God. Friends, the cross of Jesus and his journey there, the drop he took, shows us that there is no room for pride among believers. None of us deserve this. We're all in this on the grace plan. And at the foot of the cross, there's no room for anyone that stand, stands proud. So we see the model of the pattern of his drop, his journey down. We're also to see the journey back up. That's in verses 9 through 11. It doesn't end with him as a, a humble baby or as a disgraced criminal. The story continues because God vindicates him. He's resurrected from the dead, and, and not just resurrected, he ascends back into heaven and reclaims the throne that was his. In verse 9, it tells us, Therefore, because of his humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, the idea of a name in the ancient world is different than we have today. Uh, we named our daughter Lillian. And there's no great significance to it. We just like the name. We, we like the sound of it. And, and a lot of people name their, their kids that way. We're, we're among them. But the name in the ancient world carried with it the idea of uh, lineage and power, authority. The name that the Father gives to Jesus is the name of Lord. Now, if you have a second here, just flip over with me. We have time to do this, to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, and look with me in verse 8. If you really want to make your uh, visitor at the door, uh, Jehovah's Witness or uh, Mormon, uncomfortable, take them to this text, because it shows that this name of Lord is reserved for God alone what the prophet Isaiah said. He said, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So back in Philippians, it says that the Father gave Jesus a name that is above every name. That is that Jesus attained an office that no one in history of eternity has ever held. He is both God and man. He both has all the rights and authority of God and yet has experienced the brokenness of walking as a man on this earth. And that Jesus now sits on the throne in heaven with his father and is right now ruling this world that we live in. And that's not the end of it. This Jesus isn't just going to stay there in heaven forever. He's going to come back. We then get a look towards the future in verse 10 and following so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Paul shoots us forward to the day that's coming where Jesus returns 
And suddenly, every human being that's ever existed confesses that he is God. Uh, I hope you look forward to that day. I hope you are looking forward to the day when your king is someone you see not just with eyes of faith, but with your physical eyes. And yet, we also need to realize that what's described here is not everyone receiving him as good news of his arrival. There are many that will bow the knee and will look up to Christ with eyes of adoration because they have known him as Savior. And yet there are many who will bow the knee and confess him as Lord, as those who have been conquered by the Lion of Judah, who are confessing even then their folly. Friends, this, this is the Christ whom we worship, and this is the Christ whose pattern of life we are to follow. What do we do with such a, a high top moment of scripture like this? What do, what do we do with it in our own personal lives? Well, I think each of us this morning need to come to grips with the fact that we are called to follow Jesus in that journey down. Each of us are being called to find some way through the grace that we have in Jesus to get outside of ourselves, to put off our preferences, and to serve others with the grace we've received. How do you actually do that? Let me give you a, a few ideas. Um, maybe you're in your small group and you feel yourself getting a little bit annoyed with someone doing something that has annoyed you for a while. You're, you're just about on the verge of finally saying something about it. Or, or maybe you feel like you're underappreciated for all the work that you do around here. And you're not on the verge of actually doing anything except you're feeling your heart turn a little bit inward. At those moments, ask yourself these questions. Am I really giving up all that much? Is my drop that I'm experiencing at this moment, is it really anything to compare with the drop that Jesus went through? Am I really giving away more than I've received from Christ in his humility? Am I really going to be that disadvantaged by giving up this thing, whatever it is? Isn't there some way maybe that God might be growing me through this. I had to learn this lesson myself early on in my ministry career. I, had, um, I was given an opportunity to give a testimony in front of a, uh, the church. And uh, I w had been converted not long before. And um, they had me, thankfully, write out what I was going to say. And so I had to give it to one of the pastors to review before I got up in front of the church and shared the testimony. So I poured my heart and soul into it. You know, I, I crafted that thing. I wordsmithed it. It was just right, and I gave it to him. I'm sure he was going to tell me how wonderful it was. <laughs> and he had a few minor edits, to say the least. And uh, in my selfishness and in my pride, I reacted very poorly. Uh, it was obvious on my face that I was reacting poorly. I, I was thinking in my heart and my mind, who does this guy think he is? This is my story. 
This is my chance to let people know what God's been doing. Who's he to stand in the way? And I'll never forget what he told me. He says, pray that I never do. He said, Tommy, in the worship of God, there's no room for you. There's only room for Jesus. Now get out of the way. <laughs> and I needed that rebuke. I really did. And it has borne much fruit in my life over the years. Remember, it's not about me. It's about him. And about his grace that's at work among us. Maybe you've been serving and you have been having to experience a series of drops because of the inconvenience or the cost it takes. Maybe you miss worship on Sunday morning in order to serve down with the children. Maybe you have to get here early or leave late. Uh, maybe for years you've been doing something and no one ever comes around and tells you what a great job you're doing. Friends, I want you to be encouraged this morning. That is right where you need to be. Instead of letting your heart turn inward in those moments and letting bitterness set in, instead rejoice that God would allow his grace to be at work even in the day-to-day -day of how you experience the body of Christ. I find tremendous encouragement just looking at the road that this church has gone through to get where we are. I think of the drop that many believers over the years experience that allowed this church to be born. Uh, I just can't say anything except that is the grace of Jesus at work, working for the unity of the body of Christ. Maybe you've been hurt by selfishness within the body, people not doing this well. Maybe you've even been the one doing the hurting. Friends, I hope this morning you see the beauty of the gospel and what was given up for you. I hope maybe God might be doing a work to help you to have that mind of Christ and to live it out amongst us. Each of us is going to need again and again to be brought to our knees at the foot of the cross. Otherwise, we, much like those Laker teams, we're going to go up in a puff of smoke. The disease of me will win the day. I think what's most, I think what's most uh, sad about Pat Riley's story is that even after he wrote that book, which is so accurate, even after he went out giving conferences and talks to corporations about the disease of me, you know, ultimately he gave into it again. History would repeat itself. He, he was able to put together another dynasty team, this time in my hometown, the Miami Heat. And for four glorious years, they were on the top of the NBA. Got two championships out of it. They were on national TV all the time. And you know what ended up happening? It all broke, broke up. It splintered. There were factions. And it all ended very poorly. One player was quoted as saying that the fourth year was like being in a bad marriage. You were just so done with each other, you couldn't wait to get out. For all the wisdom that Pat Riley had stumbled upon, he didn't have the solution to the disease of me. Because the solution is the cross of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we do have that solution. My prayer as your pastor is that 
the Lord would continue to bring us to our knees, that his grace would both humble us and motivate us to serve each other out of his love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we even now confess how far short we have fallen of the call we have as citizens of heaven. How easily we fall into our own selfish desires. How quickly we think about me, me, and me. And how how much we take for granted the grace that we have in the cross. Would you bring us to our knees again? Help us to serve each other out of the humble unity that we should have of those, as those who have been so loved by our Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's all stand and close with a song. Let's thank the Lord for this cross.